The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 84 to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Okay, we're in Numbers 6, it's verses 22 through 27 today. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So... They shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. There's a Jewish guy who is also a very militant atheist that lives on the Upper West Side of New York City. And yet, he sent his son Morris to Trinity School. Despite its denominational roots, it's a great school which has become completely secular, and so he didn't mind. After a month, Morris came home and said casually, By the way, Dad, I learned what Trinity means. It means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The Father could barely control his rage. He seized Morris and declared, Morris, I'm going to tell you something and I want you to remember it. Forget this Trinity business. There is only one God and we do not believe in him. (laughs) One way that people deny the doctrine of the Trinity is to say that the word Trinity is never used in Scripture. That is what we would call a theological football bat. There are lots of things that are taught in Scripture which are not specifically named there. The term original sin is never used, but it is clearly taught. The word rapture is not used, but the doctrine is perfectly explained by Paul. Because the Trinity is revealed in the Bible, it has been studied, contemplated, and taught since the time of the apostles and later by the church fathers. Tertullian, who lived during the 2nd and 3rd centuries, was an African apologist and theologian. He wrote a great deal in defense of Christianity, including on the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's what he said. We define that there are two, the Father and the Son, 
and three with the Holy Spirit. And this number is made by the pattern of salvation, which brings about unity in Trinity, interrelating the three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are three, not in dignity, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in kind. They are of one substance and power because there is one God from whom these degrees, forms, and kinds devolve in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. After Tertullian, countless other scholars have added their thoughts to the ever-expanding body of knowledge dealing with this hugely complex doctrine. Some have been less than adequate. Some have been downright wrong. And so we need to be careful to sort through commentaries and not just cut and paste whatever anyone says without really considering it. When speaking of the Trinity, heresy is just a simple misstep away. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 6, it's verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This verse is known as the Tres Hagion, or the Three Holies, which is Scripture's great proclamation of the splendor of God. It alludes to a fullness in God that is hard to mistake. It is from this verse which is derived the beloved hymn written by Reginald Heber, where he says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. True Christians are Trinitarian monotheists. This may seem on the surface contradictory, and indeed cults such as the Jehovah's Witnesses misunderstand the concept of the Trinity to such a point that what they claim mainstream Christianity believes is actually a triad within a Godhead, not a Trinity within the Godhead. But this is certainly not the case. The difference between a triad and the trinity is the difference between the finite and the infinite. We believe in one God and only one God. We believe this because this is what the Bible proclaims. But we believe that there is a fullness to this God which is represented in the Trinitarian model. And why do we believe this? Because this is what the Bible teaches including in a rather unusual way in the sermon verses of Numbers chapter 6. As the Bible is the rule and guide of our faith, we would be ignorant at best and found false teachers as well should we deny what this book proclaims. But this doesn't mean it's an easy concept to understand. Men have been struggling with it since it was revealed. John Wesley stated, Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Well, today we'll look for that worm. Because at least in a limited way, we can comprehend the triune God. We can comprehend his nature, and we can know that what we so comprehend is correct. Why? Because it's in accord with his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have six thoughts for you today. The first is the monotheistic God. Malik Jabbar says the following, All of the monotheistic religions which primarily include Islam, Christianity, and Judaism are mythological representations of the natural environment. The ancients fashioned their spiritual concepts as mythical copies of natural phenomena, the environment, and its interactions. 
They pictured the sun as the ruler of the universe, the life giver, the conqueror of darkness and cold, the scorcher with its intense fire, the compassionate with its soothing heat. When the sun triumphantly appeared on the eastern horizon at the dawning of the day, the whole universe, from our earthly perspective, was seen bowing in submission to the greatest of all lights. All the stars and planets of the higher and lower heavens were vanquished without trace at the dawning of the great sun god. The physical reality is the true seminal generator of our religious rituals in reference to an omnipotent conquering god evolved from the customs of the ancients. What Jabbar says here is incoherent at best. (laughs) If man were to make a religion based on natural phenomena, it would be a rare occurrence for him to be a monotheist. The sun would be one of many gods, and this is what has occurred as religion has devolved throughout the ages. In the 19th Psalm, David skips over the created God that Jabbar proclaims and exalts the God who created the very sun who is supposedly the object of reference in his confused analysis. Here's what David says in Psalm 19, verse 1, and then Psalm 19, verse 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Verse 4, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun. David understood that the creator is above, not subservient to, or part of his creation. In modern times, though, liberal theologians have twisted the evolution of religion, turning it completely upside down. It's evident from the historical record in the worship of God by man, that the most ancient belief is that of monotheism. From that point, worship has devolved into polytheism, animism, and so on, not the other way around. The noted Assyriologist Stephen Langdon records the following. The history of Sumerian religion, which was the most powerful cultural influence in the ancient world, could be traced by means of pictographic inscriptions almost to the earliest religious concepts of man. The evidence points unmistakably to original monotheism. The inscriptions and literary remains of the oldest Semitic peoples also indicate a primitive monotheism, and the totemistic origin of Hebrew and other Semitic religions is now entirely discredited. The region of Sumeria, which Langdon cites, is where many of the early Bible figures found their homes, and it is the record of these early people which are included in the pages of the Bible as breathed out by the one true God. From the first page of the Bible to its very last, the existence of only one God is proclaimed. Here, from Psalm 86, verse 10, is man speaking to God. For you are great and do wondrous things. You are God alone. And then from Isaiah 45, verse 18, we have God speaking to man. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In the book of Isaiah alone, this claim is directly made almost a dozen times. Yes, there is one God. Reason and intellect tell us this, and the Bible fully supports what we can know simply by thinking things through in a rational manner. However, How could a being that didn't understand fellowship create anything beyond himself containing fellowship? Rather, he'd be completely contained within himself and without fellowship. 
The principle of analogy states that the cause of being cannot produce what it does not possess. Because of this, the fact that we're social beings confirms a plurality within a single essence, such as the Trinity. Our second thought today is the Trinity. Despite the Bible proclaiming only one God, one of the most important tenets of true Christianity is the concept of the Trinity. It is clearly presented throughout the Bible, but it was a mystery long hidden at God's prerogative. It wasn't until the time of Christ that the mystery of this profound secret was finally and truly revealed. Here's what Paul says in Romans 16. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The doctrine of the Trinity, as understood by Christianity, states that God has a threefold personhood, and yet they together are one God, three persons in one essence. The term persons comes from St. Augustine, who agreed that it wasn't the best of terms, but, as he says, rather than being silent on the subject. This Trinity, as revealed throughout Scripture, is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, at one time or another, the pronoun he is used to describe each separate part of this eternal Godhead, demonstrating an individual person, and yet this person has all of the qualities of God. He is the creator. He is eternal. He reads our hearts and minds and so on. All of these attributes are attributed at one time or another to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Either the Bible is filled with confusion or each of these is God. When Jesus uttered the Great Commission to his apostles, he said the following, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, the word name is onoma. It is a singular noun, meaning each of these entities combines into one essence. It would be good to ask, is this completely unique to the New Testament, or can we find a parallel in the Old? The answer is yes. Yes, we can. The Shema, or here, of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, gives us an example. Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In these words, it says, the Lord is one. A cluster of grapes is one, and yet there's lots of grapes. The people of Israel are one people. Adam and Eve were called Besar Echad, or one flesh. These are made up of individual parts, and yet they are termed one. The word echad used in the Shema enables this interpretation. Another word signifying one and only one, yachid, was not used. We can rightly assume that the Creator knows Hebrew better than we do. However, the term echad was used in this most important of statements. Throughout the ages, since the establishment of the church, people have used tangible concepts to try to explain the Trinity, such as water being steam, liquid, or solid, or a circle divided into three equal parts, and so on, or maybe an egg which has a shell, a yolk, and a white part. However, none of these accurately portrays the concept correctly, and if used, they actually lead to heresy. 
So we should ask, is there no proper analogy? Has God left us with a concept, but no way to properly explain it? No. A concept has been provided, and it's visible everywhere you look, and it is beautifully explained by Dr. Nathan Wood in the book, The Secret of the Universe. He explains that the universe is made up of a trinity of space, time, and matter. All of them exist, and all of them exist everywhere and at all times, and yet they're not the same. Furthermore, each of these is a trinity itself. Space is comprised of length, breadth, and height. They're all places at all times, and yet they're individual things. Space is comprised of length, breadth, and height. Time is expressed in past, present, or future. And matter consists of energy in motion producing phenomena. The universe itself is a trinity of trinities. Further, we can make the assertion and equate space with the Father. He's unseen and yet omnipresent. Matter with the Son, visible, tangible, understandable. And time with the Spirit, which is unseen, and yet it is a medium in which we move and gain understanding. Taking this concept, time, Dr. Wood breaks it down in an understandable way. After doing this, he changes only four words and thereby beautifully explains the mystery of the Trinity. He says, the future is the source. The future is unseen, unknown, except as it continually embodies itself and makes itself visible in the present. The present is what we see and hear and know. It is ceaselessly embodying the future, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. It is perpetually revealing the future, hitherto invisible. The future is logically first, but not chronologically. For the present exists as long as time exists and was in the absolute beginning of time. The present has existed as long as time has existed. Time acts through and in the present. It makes itself visible only in the present. The future acts and reveals itself through the present. It is through the present, the time, that the future enters into union with human life. Time and humanity meet and unite in the present. It is in the present, the time, that the future becomes a part of human life and so is born and lives and dies in human life. The past, in turn, comes from the present. We cannot say that it embodies the present. On the contrary, time in issuing from the present and into the past becomes invisible again. The past does not embody the present. Rather, it proceeds silently, endlessly, invisibly from it. But the present is not the source of the past, which proceeds from it. The future is the source of both the present and the past. The past issues an endless, invisible procession from the present, but back of that, from the future, out of which the present comes. The past issues, it proceeds from the future through the present. The present, therefore, comes out of the invisible future. The present perpetually and ever newly embodies the future in visible, audible, livable form and returns again into invisible time in the past. The past acts invisibly. It continually influences us with regard to the present. It casts light upon the present. That is its great function. It helps us to live in the present, which we know, and with reference to the future, which we expect to see. Now I'm going to substitute four words 
God replaces time, Father replaces future, Son replaces present, Spirit replaces past. And I'm going to read his work again. The Father is the source. The Father is unseen, unknown, except as he continually embodies himself and makes himself visible in the Son. The Son is what we see and hear and know. He is ceaselessly embodying the Father. Day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, he is perpetually revealing the Father, hitherto invisible. The Father is logically first, but not chronologically. For the Son exists as long as God exists and was in the absolute beginning of God. The Son has existed as long as God has existed. God acts through and in the Son. The Father makes himself visible only in the Son. The Father acts and reveals himself through the Son. It is through the Son that God, that the Father enters into union with human life and so is born and lives and dies in human life. God and humanity meet and unite in the Son. It is in the Son that God, that the Father becomes a part of human life and so is born and lives and dies in human life. The Spirit, in turn, comes from the Son. We cannot say that it embodies the Son. On the contrary, the Spirit, in issuing from the Son into the Spirit, becomes invisible again. The Spirit does not embody the Son. Rather, it proceeds silently, endlessly, invisibly from Him. But the Son is not the source of the Spirit who proceeds from Him. The Father is the source of both the Son and of the Spirit. The Spirit issues an endless, invisible procession from the Son, but back of that, from the Father, out of whom the Son comes. The Spirit issues. He proceeds from the Father through the Son. The Son, therefore, comes out from the invisible Father. The Son perpetually and ever newly embodies the Father in visible, audible, livable form and returns again into invisible God in the Spirit. The Spirit acts invisibly. It continually influences us with regard to the Son. It casts light upon the Son. That is His great function. He helps us to live in the Son, which we know, and with reference to the Father, which we expect to see. This is what has been evident since creation in the physical universe, and to which God's Word, the Bible, faithfully testifies to in the nature of the Godhead. Such as, here's what it says in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. In the first chapter of scripture, the terms us and our, plural, are used by the creator, reflecting his triune nature. And again, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Zechariah 12 places the members of the Trinity together in one passage. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. These words in Zechariah are so obvious in what they proclaim that the Jehovah's Witnesses, in their tragically flawed translation of the Bible, use a margin note rather than the text itself when translating that verse. They won't even touch that verse because it destroys all of their already incoherent theology. 
The Gospel of John time and time again reflects the relationship between the Father and the Son as well as the Spirit. In John 14, 8 and 9, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Paul shows he clearly understood God's triune nature. He alludes to it several times in his epistles, such as the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. These are just a couple of innumerable verses which either implicitly or explicitly reveal a Godhead. Our third thought today, God the Father. God the Father is clearly acknowledged by all Christians as well as most cults and sects who use the Bible as their reference. An unfortunate exception, of course, has come out of modern liberal denominations and translations of the Bible, which have purposed a gender-neutral God and a gender-neutral Bible. Regardless of this nonsense, the texts as received from God for our Bible are in the masculine, and for that reason, we adopt political correctness in this matter at our own peril. God's word stands, though. Concerning God the Father, we read from John 4, verses 23 and 24, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And he says also in John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. These verses perfectly match the description Dr. Wood made concerning the nature of the Father within the Trinity. Our fourth thought today, God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with him in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John could not have been any clearer about the nature of the Word and his eternal relationship in God. It never ceases to amaze me how people can twist something so clear and so precise in order to deny the truth of the very words John was so careful to pen. In his first epistle, he follows the exact same pattern concerning the word. These verses, along with everything else that John writes, is so absolutely grounded in the deity of Jesus that it is inexcusable to misunderstand or to deny what he is saying, such as 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life— the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Later in Revelation, John quotes Jesus' own words, his own claim to deity. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. To be a fair evaluator of God's word, I want you to be careful about the next verse I give. The Greek used here is often cited as a proof that Jesus claimed to be God. He says in John 8:58, "Most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was, I am." How many of you have heard that the words there translated as I am prove that Jesus is claiming to be God? Have you all heard that before? 
Some of you are shaking your head. The Greek words are ego imi. However, going to the very next chapter, the same words with the same parsing in the Greek are used by the man that Jesus healed. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. John 9, 8 and 9. The words are ego me. In the verse, the man states ego me just as Jesus did. This person clearly wasn't claiming to be God. So we need to be careful to understand the context, not simply the words used. The claim of deity is evident from the construct of the verse. Before Abraham was, ego imi, I am. Further, he spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, not Greek. The words he used would have been understood as a claim to being Jehovah. He was making a claim to eternality and to deity. How do we know this? The very next verse in John, then they took stones up to throw at him. The fact that they had picked up stones to throw at him testifies that he had claimed to be deity while speaking in either Hebrew or Aramaic. He was being accused of blasphemy, for which stoning was the penalty. John 10 leaves no doubt about the nature of the Son. Here's what it says in John 10, 30 and 31. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. In these words, both what Jesus said and the people's reaction again assure us that Jesus was claiming to be deity. Next, Luke had no doubt about Christ's deity. Listen to how carefully he worded the following, which is a pattern throughout his writings. Here's what he says in Luke 8, 39. Return to your own house and tell them what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Either Luke was making a point for us to read and understand, or he was an incompetent blasphemer. There's simply no other way to take the words. Paul completely supports the deity and godhood of Jesus Christ with these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. The writer of Hebrews makes exactly the same claim as Paul. The sun, he says in Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It is incomprehensible to think that a created being could somehow sustain all things. Not only is this the case, but the principle of contingency disallows it. There are 12 first principles. If you learn those and understand them, you will have no problem with the nature of the Godhead. Any attempt to deny the principle of contingency will actually instead validate it. A contingent or created being cannot create or sustain anything else because it is already contingent. No matter what else, the deity of Jesus Christ is not only fully supportable by the Bible, but it is the only logical and reasonable conclusion that we can come to if we believe the Bible. It is through Jesus that the eternal God reveals himself to us, and it is the Holy Spirit who will, if we allow him, to teach us proper doctrine concerning the nature of God. And that brings us to our fifth thought today, God the Holy Spirit. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. In the Bible, the work of begetting sons is the job of God the Father. But guess what? It is also the work of the spirit. To attribute this to the spirit, were it not the case, would be blasphemous. The Jehovah's Witnesses naturally deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. They call him an active force, whatever that means. They have to make up a term for the Spirit which is completely unbiblical in order to diminish his proper role as the third member of the Godhead. But the Spirit is the one who searches the Godhead and reveals to us God's workings. 1 Corinthians 2.11 For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, after talking about Christ the Lord, does a change-up and says in practically the same breath, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. Either Paul is theologically confused, or he is as clear as a crystal in his claim Christ is the Lord, the Spirit is the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord. Surely we praise our Creator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Scripture in both Testaments leaves no doubt about the triune nature of God, a blessing upon the people of God, a blessing of His name resting upon them in peace. No matter where on this earth shall their feet trod, his blessing is upon them and it will never cease. The name of the Lord is their protection and life. The name of the Lord is their anchor and stay. And the name of the Lord is the ending of strife. When placed upon the people, peace leads the way. May your precious and holy name rest upon us. May the glory of Christ be ours to protect us from harm. We look to the Lord, our precious Lord Jesus. His name reveals to us God's tenderly caring arm. Our sixth thought today, our final thought today, the ironic blessing. It's verses 22 through 27 of chapter 6 of Numbers. Because our sermon text today is the high priestly blessing of number six, you might have been wondering why we would first go through a short evaluation of the nature of the Trinity. The reason is that within this blessing, like within the Shema we read earlier, there's an implicit hint of the Trinity. But this hint is more forceful than that in the Shema, as we will see. Verse 22, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, To close out chapter 6, the Lord conveys a most magnificent set of words to the people of Israel. It is unsure when these words were spoken to Moses, but they have been placed here as a logical progression of thought concerning the camp and the armies of Israel. The Lord speaks first through Moses and then through Aaron, as is seen with the words, verse 23, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying. The words are the Lord's, but they are intended for speaking by Aaron and his sons. Thus, they are known as the Aaronic blessing, following after Aaron, the first high priest, or the Berchat Kohanim, the priestly blessing, following after the line of priests to whom they were addressed. Both names are acceptable because it is to both Aaron and his sons that they are so instructed. <laughs> Verse 23 continues, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel, say to them. So far in numbers, the armies of the Lord have been drawn up, 
Their encampments have been identified. The priests and the Levites have been given their charge and have been assigned their stations around the sanctuary. The camp has been purified from those who are unclean. The matter of confession and restitution has been addressed. The law of jealousy was dealt with and the law of the Nazarite has been explained. The people are now a united whole laid out according to the Lord's design. They will soon be ready to depart for Canaan. These details of organized life so far and the departure, which is soon at hand, are now to be accentuated and graced by the following most memorable verses. In the Hebrew, the main blessing consists of three verses of 15 words of 60 letters. The verses are divided into double clauses with each clause referring to Jehovah, the Lord, in a petition that he bestow the stated blessing upon Israel. It is a blessing that sustained them for 1,500 years until the time of Christ. And it is a blessing which still gives them hope and assurance since that day. Though they miss the significance of who Jesus is, they still have a hope in the Lord, even if it is misdirected at this time because of what the words proclaim. Someday their hope in the Lord, Jehovah, will be united with their understanding of who he is. It is this Lord who now speaks out the simple and yet life-sustaining words of blessing. Verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. In the Hebrew, the name Jehovah is spelled yod Hey vav Hey, as it always is. The accent to the name is written out with its accompanying vowel points, which indicate the pronunciation and formative aspect of the name beyond the basic letters. The words here and throughout the blessing are in the singular, ha, instead of chem. Though Israel is a group of people, they are still one people. The many are blessed individually, and the individuals are thus collectively blessed. The Lord bless you is a petition to bestow upon Israel all blessing, both spiritual and temporal. It is a call to such blessing and a continuous outpouring of God's grace and mercy upon this chosen but undeserving people. The word translated as and keep you clarifies and more fully explains the words the Lord bless you. In blessing the people, they can anticipate being kept both physically and spiritually, for good and from evil. Though curses have been assured already for disobedience, the blessing now is one which would keep them even in their disobedience. To be kept as an ongoing fountain of support and relief. It is not a one-time, but an all-time continuous outpouring of God's sustaining hand upon his people. Remember, this is a cumulative blessing upon Israel, the people. Has that blessing failed? No, they have been blessed and they have been kept. Even in times of experiencing the curses of the law of Leviticus 26, the words have remained faithfully true to them. Verse 25, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Ya'er Yehovah panav eliecha vikuneka. The name Yehovah here is spelled again, yud he vav he. But this time, the vowel points which indicate the pronunciation and formative aspect of the name beyond the basic letters are different than previously. The blessing of the first two clauses of verse 24 is now elevated in the continuation of it in verse 25. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you is a way of saying that the very light of Jehovah, his infinitely bright countenance, should radiate upon Israel. The face of the Lord reflects who he is. His personality, his demeanor, and his eternality are all tied up into the thought of his face. When these shine upon the people, they will receive the abundance of who he is in a ceaseless, endless procession of his divine attributes. The face of the Lord can be turned away from the people in rejection, or it can be turned toward them in wrath. The blessing asks for neither, though either may come. But it does ask that the radiance and goodness of Jehovah be directed to them. In the simplest form, for the face of the Lord to shine upon them is for him to smile upon them as a father would to his own children. Only goodness and mercy are anticipated in the blessing. The words of the clause and be gracious to you simply heighten the thought of the first verse. The Lord's shining and radiant face is directed toward the people and in his light they find grace. Though life for them is a vast wilderness of unknown duration, direction, and expectation, with the grace of the Lord upon them, they will find their way into safe places of rest and comfort. This is for both their physical existence and for their spiritual walk. The cool waters of life will come flowing into the parched soul when the Lord is gracious to them as a people. As this is a cumulative blessing upon the people, has the blessing failed? No. The Lord's face has shown upon them, and it continues to do so. And the Lord has been exceedingly gracious to them, granting them what they have not deserved for 3,500 years. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yisa Yehovah panav eliecha veyasem lecha shalom. The name Yehovah is again spelled yud, hey, vav, hey. And for the third time, the vowel points are different than before. It is abundantly clear from this that there are three distinct and individual persons in one Yehovah, a trinity. The Hebrew clearly indicates this. The words, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, are a third elevation of the intensity of the blessing. They indicate a rising up of the refulgency of the Lord's face over Israel in abundance of grace, kindness, love, and attention. He has gone from shining his face upon them to having it radiate over them, blotting out any darkness as his glory overwhelms everything else. He is on Israel's side, and no foe can bring them harm or shame apart from his allowances. Wounds may come, but they will only be self-inflicted. The Lord has shown upon them, and they are secure because of that. And the blessing closes out with, and give you peace. The word is shalom. It is more than a blessing for calm or quiet, but it is a state of wholeness and completion in all ways. The lifting up of the Lord's countenance finds its intended fulfillment in the peace of his people. They stand safe, secure, and in perfect harmony with the world around them and with their ambitions, their desires, and their needs. And they find perfect harmony in their spiritual state as well. They have peace with God and are in contentment with themselves and their neighbors. This is what the Lord commands for Aaron and his sons to bless the people with. Words of light life, love, and peace. Verse 27 finishes us today with, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. 
It is interesting that the Lord has given the responsibility of the blessing to the people, to Aaron and his sons, and yet he retains the accomplishment and fulfillment of the blessing for himself. So they shall put my name and I will bless them. There is the audibly spoken name of the Lord, which is pronounced upon Israel, and there is in return the conveyance of an unseen reality, which rests upon them. To fully understand what it means to have the name of the Lord placed upon Israel, it would be good to understand the meaning behind that name. The sermon on Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15, entitled, I Am That I Am, would be a logical place for you to go in order to more fully understand the magnificence of what is being proclaimed right here in the book of Numbers. As I've already told you, the divine name is given three times and it is pointed differently each time. Though the points did not exist in the original Hebrew, there is a reason that they were so pointed by the Masoretes. To them, the three instances are considered a mystery. But in Christ, in the New Testament, the mystery is revealed. They together are revealed in verses such as Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and elsewhere, which we looked at earlier. In Christ, it is no leap to go from a threefold repetition of the divine name and numbers to an understanding of the three persons in the Trinity. Such is the nature of God and how God reveals himself. If you struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity, that is A-OK. -okay. Everyone does, even the finest of scholars. What you should not struggle with is your faith in the Trinity. We don't have to understand a thing in order to believe it. I do not understand my wife, but I believe in her. What is important is to accept God's word despite our lack of a complete understanding. His word proclaims there is a trinity within the Godhead, and so we are asked to accept that. And included in that is the subject of Jesus Christ, the second member of the trinity. It is through faith in him that we are reconciled to this triune God. It is the same triune God who instructed through Moses that Aaron and his sons should proclaim to the people of Israel, Yeberechecha Yehovah veishmerecha, Ya'er Yehovah panav eliecha vikuneka, Yisa Yehovah panav eliecha veyesem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Isn't it wonderful to know that we serve a God that can understand fellowship? As I said at the beginning of this sermon, a God that does not understand something cannot create that thing. If they're, because we are loving creatures, we know that God possesses love. Because we have fellowship and a need for fellowship, we know that God possesses that. He cannot create what he does not possess. If God was a monad, as Islam teaches, he would never get out of outside of himself. He would be fully contained in himself for all eternity. There would be no physical universe. It would be impossible. But because there is a Godhead, and because there is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit in perfect unity within that Godhead, he can create, and he did create. And why did he do it? Because he wanted to express those things that he himself possesses. Love, grace, mercy, tenderness, fellowship, and so on. And all of those things are evident. We don't need the Bible. 
to understand those things. If you want to understand them, go back and watch Genesis 1 verse 1. I did a sermon on it, on the 12 first principles. And you can know with absolute certainty what is wrong about the nature of God and what is correct about the nature of God. And the one thing that we can understand perfectly is that God is infinite. He created time, space, and matter. They did not exist until he created them. And therefore, everything about him is. Because any change in God would happen within time. If God loved more all of a sudden, there would be time. But he created time. And you can't have time without space or matter. Okay? Because these things are, that means that there's a giant problem with you and me. Because we're in the stream of time. We're going forward. He's infinitely holy. And guess what? Every person here is not holy. We are all fallen, we've all done wrong, and we are going forward past what we have done wrong, and we can't go back and undo it. And so this infinite God that is out here cannot have fellowship with us. It is impossible because he would violate his holy, righteous, and just standards in order to have fellowship with somebody that wasn't of his nature. And so he solved this problem. He loves us infinitely, but he's infinitely just. He can't overlook his justice in order to give us his love. That is impossible. It would violate his justice. It would violate his righteousness. But he is, and there can be no violation of who he is. And so what did he do? He stepped out of the infinite realm. He united with humanity in the womb of a virgin. The infinite God became incarnate. He never stopped being the infinite God, but now there is a human aspect to him. He can fellowship with us in the stream of time and space. He can live with us. He can show us a better way. He can live the law that he gave to the people to show his exacting standards, and then he could give his life up in exchange for our sins, which is authorized under the law that he gave to Israel. When Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, he was serious. There is no other way to be reconciled to God the Father. Buddhism ain't going to get you there. Islam isn't going to get you there. Animism isn't going to get you there. Posting on Facebook that all paths lead to God isn't going to get you there. The only way to do it is to go through what God has authorized for it to happen. Because he's not violating his righteousness. He's not violating his justice when he took his anger out on his own son. He's demonstrating his love. He's demonstrating his mercy. He's demonstrating his grace, his justice, his righteousness. All of these are reconciled, and the tension ends at the cross of Jesus Christ. There at the foot of Calvary, you can come too, and you can lay your sins down at the foot of the cross, and his shed blood will cover them just as anybody else's. That is what he expects of us, and that is what we can know. As I said, without one page of Scripture, we can know that there's a problem that cannot be reconciled by us. Not one work on this planet will ever get us diddly closer to God. You can work for eternity trying to please God. And guess what? He's infinite. You will never attain to the infinite. The deed is done. The wall is set up. And only through Christ can that be undone. If you have never honestly accepted Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice in your life, do it today. Our closing verse today may not be in your Bible. Or it may be there and it may be footnoted. It's true that many ancient manuscripts do not contain this verse, which has become known as the Johannine comma. That's Johannine means John, the Johannine comma. But it does date back to the time of Cyprian, who lived in the third century. And it survives in his treatise against the heretics who denied the Trinity. 
Here's what he said in 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three are one. Next week is number seven, one through nine, 12 days it took to accomplish these rites. It's entitled An Offering for the Levites. That'll be our 13th number sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, it's ironic that our first Genesis sermon was on 23 October of 2011. Okay? That was just exactly seven years ago from Tuesday, and it's exactly the sermon that I recommend you go watch to understand the first principles. And then you can go to Exodus 3, uh, what is it, uh, 13 through 15, I think I said. It's only a couple verses, but it's a long sermon. It's on the meaning of the name of the Lord. I would recommend if you don't understand what you heard today, reread today's sermon and go watch those two, and it will clear up very nicely. Got a very long poem for you today. It's called The Priestly Blessing. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, memorable words he was then relaying. Speak to Aaron and his son, saying the words I now tell This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them as to you. I now tell Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our soul to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it and to our lives daily it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've so revealed yourself to us in the pages of the Bible because we would have been confused about your nature. We would have been perplexed and we would have been left with a void in our understanding of who you are. But you've given us the Bible, you've given us your son, you've given us all things so that we can understand who you are and what you will do for us for all eternity. Even though we'll never see you, O God the Father, we will see you revealed in your son, Jesus, as you ceaselessly, endlessly reveal yourself through him. And that is sufficient because he is our God. And we look forward to the day when we stand in his presence to receive our judgment for the things done in this body not for condemnation or for salvation, but for rewards and losses. And so help us to live our life properly in your presence as faithful stewards of you, explaining to people what is proper concerning you, that you are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it's in your beautiful and exalted name and in the name of Jesus, our Lord, that we pray. Amen.